we're back in Luke. We're finishing up the 12th chapter. Um, and we are starting in the verses 49. We're going to go through verse 49 through 59. So hear the word of God. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, to guide us through this complex passage. Lord, that we may leave this place with an encouraging word, a word of wisdom. Lord, a word of transformation. We pray that you would convict us and convince us, Lord, by your Spirit and on account of this truth found here, that we would leave differently than the way we came in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 1986. And I remember they gave us the day off from school uh, to be home and watch the Space Shuttle Challenger launch. 17% of America's population watched the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. It was the largest, at that time, viewership of any Space Shuttle launch. And one of the reasons was because among the seven-member crew, there was a school teacher, Krista McAuliffe. And so, naturally, I was in the sixth grade, and so they gave school kids the day off so we could watch the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Um, My mom stayed home also to watch, and I remember sitting in front of the television as the Space Shuttle Challenger took off, um, I think it was in Cape Canaveral, and we watched the Space Shuttle, and about a minute and a half into its launch, the shuttle blew apart blew up in mid-air. And we didn't really know what we were witnessing at the time. We thought, but, but you know, was this supposed to happen? But as, as we heard the, the broadcasters and the people on television, we realized a minute later that we had just witnessed an incredible tragedy. Well, it came out later that a man by the name of Bob Ebeling, one of five booster rocket engineers at NASA had tried to stop the launch. He worried that cold temperatures overnight, and the forecast said it would be 18 degrees. He worried that the cold weather would stiffen the O-ring seals that 
prevent rocket fuel from leaking out of the booster joints. So the O-ring seals, if they stayed supple, they would prevent rocket fuel from leaking out, but in the cold weather, they become hard and stiffened. And he said, we all knew if the seals failed, the shuttle would blow up, he said in a 1986 interview. And Ebeling helped assemble data that demonstrated the risk, and he argued for a delay of the launch. And at first, the executives at Morton Theocle, the NASA contractor that he worked for, agreed with him and said that they would not approve the launch. But despite hours of argument and reams of data, the Theocle executives relented. Even though the data was absolutely clear, NASA didn't want the embarrassment of pushing off the launch, the much-anticipated launch, pushing it off until April. Politics and pressure interfered. The morning of the launch, right before the space shuttle launch, a distraught Ebeling drove to NASA's remote Utah complex with his daughter. He said, the Challenger's going to blow up. Everyone's going to die, he shouted. He was beating his fist on the dashboard as he drove into the facility. He was frantic. Why couldn't they see? Why couldn't they listen? A great disaster could have been avoided, but in the end, they were blinded by their own agendas. Well, what I want us to see as we look through this passage is that the gospel divides opinions. The gospel divides people's opinions. And Jesus was also frustrated with the people of his day because they couldn't see that the most important moment in all of their history that they had been waiting for was about to happen right in front of them. He was, after all, the long-awaited Messiah, the prophesied Savior that was to come, announcing the kingdom of God, but they could not see it. They could not hear it. He was announcing good news for sinners, the kingdom of God, but the people wouldn't listen to him. Like the executives at NASA, the people of Jesus' day had their own agendas. His message, the message of the gospel, was actually quite divisive. You know, because people will often rather live in ignorant bliss than see the truth. Because the truth can be hard to swallow, can it? It can be hard to hear the truth. In fact, we often love people who tell us things we want to hear instead of the things we need to hear. I met a pastor, I was, met with a pastor this week, a friend of mine from seminary, and we were commenting on how um, what's popular today is um, treating the Bible like a life hack. Treating the Bible uh, like merely a series of life principles. And what I mean by a life hack is, is maybe you've ever seen on the internet, you've seen videos where it shows you how to maybe take an empty toilet roll um, dispenser, cut a hole in it, and you drop your smartphone in it, and the, the noise from the music blasts out the sides. You know, 50 bucks saved on a speaker, boom, it's a life hack. 
You know, you take a roll of toothpaste, and if you take this, this little device and you squeeze up from the bottom, you can get 20 more, you know, 20% more toothpaste from the toothpaste dispenser. You know, boom, life hack, right? Who doesn't love life hacks? We all love life hacks. And there's a temptation, not just a temptation, but it's popular nowadays to treat the Bible as simply a series of a bunch of life principles where we can kind of hack our life kind of figure out and decode the complexities of life and live a really good and successful life. And on one hand, we understand where this impulse comes from, right? We want to live a good life and we want to honor God. And if we can mix them together through the word of God, then it's win-win for everybody. But the problem is the Bible just doesn't work that way. We all want to hear sermons like, you know, three keys to a successful marriage, Four steps from the Bible for financial success. I love hearing sermons like that. It just feels good. Because we all want to know what we can do. What can I do? Tell me what to do. We move through a passage of Scripture. We say, okay, that's great. Now what do I do? What can I do to have a better life? I want to take this information, apply it to my life, and you know, have a better week. The problem, as I said, is the Bible just doesn't work that way. Now, sometimes it has lots of life principles, but one of the reasons it doesn't work that way is because you can take all the principles and sometimes life still falls apart. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise your hand, but you can probably um, talk about how there are times where you did everything right and things still didn't work out. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, is a book that straddles human suffering. It, it, it it, it tries to grapple with this idea of a righteous man, Job, who did everything right and things still went bad. Of the 42 chapters, 38 of them is Job wrestling with his friends about this idea of the law of reciprocation or the law of reciprocity. Because the way our minds and the way the world works is if you do this, this will happen. If you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. And generally, that's true. Generally, that is true. In fact, the Proverbs is a book in the Bible that says, do this and this is likely to happen. Train up your children in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they won't, they won't depart from it. What's helpful for us to recognize is that the Proverbs are not promises. They are statements about things that are generally true, but not always not always do you raise your children in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they don't, don't depart from it. Sometimes they depart and they never return. Not always you know, does good financial stewardship reap a financial harvest. Sometimes you could invest your money in all the, the best things, and the stock market crash, and you lose everything, right? And so the Bible just doesn't, isn't meant to function that way. It's not meant to function like one big life hack, where if you just unlock the keys... You can just live a happy life. Now, I do believe that there is true happiness that is only found in knowing God in the person of Jesus by exploring his instructions for us that, that lead to true happiness. But it's not the kind of happiness that the world thinks of. Jesus' message is often divisive. As we've been moving through Luke, one of the things we see is that some of Jesus' statements are not just happy-go-lucky statements about how to get along with people and, and everything is just fine and dandy and here's how you can have joy and here's how you can have peace. 
And I want to say that we do have joy and peace in Jesus, but our expectation, if, if we don't have the right expectations, if we set our expectations in a place they shouldn't be, we find ourselves thinking, why am I, why am I obeying the word of God? Why am I serving Jesus? Why am I worshiping God? Why am I a Christian? I'm not getting the results I was promised that I would get. This isn't, this isn't panning out. Jesus' words were often divisive. He says in verse 49, and I'm reading from the new, the, uh, the new literal translation, so this is a different version than the ESV, but I have come to set the world on fire. I've come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I'm under such a heavy burden until it's accomplished. That was, those were Jesus' words. I have come to set the world ablaze. Doesn't sound a whole lot like message of peace and unity, right? What do you you mean set the world ablaze? What does it mean? He came to set the world on fire, and he wishes it was already burning. Jesus, as he came into the world and as he started his public ministry, he is under this weight of suffering because he is about to accomplish, accomplish the work of redemption on the cross, which would end in his own death. And he says, I have a terrible, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, some of you are thinking, is he talking about going into the water? Well, you may remember um, when James and John, the mother of James and John, came to Jesus and said, "Um, Master, when you come into your kingdom, would you allow my two sons, James and John, to sit at your right hand and your left hand? And he says, whoa, 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 that's not my... That's not for me to give out who sits where. He says, but are they able to be baptized with the baptism that I am going to be baptized with? Talking about being immersed in the suffering and affliction that the cross would require. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Do you even know what you're asking? And so he says this statement here, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me and I'm, and I'm under a heavy burden until it's accomplished, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I didn't. I've come to divide people against each other, and from now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against me, or two in favor and three against me. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, And you might be thinking, as I mentioned a minute ago, and how is this good news? Right? Talking about dividing families? How how is this good news, right? Jesus supposedly came to bring good news, but he's talking about splitting families apart. What gives? Well, there's another passage in Luke 14 that unpacks this a little bit more for us. And Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. There's a statement by Jeff Robinson, and he says, this hyperbolic language illustrates the steep cost of following Jesus. Any prospective follower of Jesus must be glad to give up everything, to love him unreservedly, and be willing to be divided with others we're close to over that opinion. As I mentioned 
in our first point, the gospel divides opinions. That's how the gospel creates division. It's not that God wants to have people at war with each other, but the gospel invariably, our opinions of who Jesus is and in terms of what our response to him should be, what divides people. And Jesus is touching on a central point that ultimately in the grand scheme of history, on the day of judgment, the earth will be divided really into two camps. There are really, in the, at the end of the day, only two groups of people in all the earth, and that is those whose opinion is that Jesus is Savior and those who believe he's not. Jesus says, I've come to bring division. In this sense, he didn't come to bring peace. The very nature of his person as the Son of God and as the Savior of all mankind requires us, it disables us, it does not allow us the option, as I've said before, of being neutral. We can't be neutral about Jesus. He won't allow it. God has not given us that option. See, if a person is to be a Christian and follow Jesus, there will be rivals warring for supremacy over the throne of our hearts. But our love for Jesus must defeat everyone. Every one of those rivals must be defeated by our love for Jesus. And sometimes those rivals are members of our own household. Another passage that kind of gets at this idea is Matthew 10, 37. And it might provide an interpretational key to unlock what Jesus means. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is talking about the high cost of discipleship. You know, some people, after peering over the cliff, you know, coming to the edge and looking at the steep cost of discipleship, it's a nice illustration, right? I'm peering over the cliff. And seeing the steep cost of discipleship, that discipleship and following Jesus, there's a cost to it. And sometimes that cost is very high. And when people see that cost they determine often that they're not willing to pay that price, right? For all different reasons. We don't want to be thought of as weird and foolish. And I was watching an interview with a Washington, D.C. political commentator who'd become a Christian recently, probably a woman in her 40s, who said that she had, she'd grown up in, in, in that arena, never met a Christian, never, didn't have a single person she knew who was a Christian. She knew there were Christians, certainly driven by churches before, but personally had never met a Christian her entire life, never known a Christian, never had a family member or a friend or a neighbor that she could think of who was a Christian. She'd become a Christian. And she was talking about how in certain circles, that is the, that is, there's a one quick way to blackball yourself, it's to name the name of Christ. And so people, they don't want to be thought of as weird or foolish or silly or ignorant or primitive. There's a price to pay. Believing in Jesus, serving Jesus, not just believing, but following Jesus. There's a price to pay. The people of Jesus' day were not willing to pay that cost, many of them. They weren't willing to take a stand. And so this great disaster was coming. A disaster, like Bob Ebeling warning NASA, a disaster that Jesus was trying to warn the people about. But they couldn't see it. And so the second point is, as we look at the next section of verses, there was a coming crisis. In verse 54, then Jesus turned to the crowd and said, when you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, here comes a shower. And you're right. 
When the south wind blows, you say, today will be a scorcher, and it is. You fools, you know how to... By the way, I mean, we think of Jesus as nice and meek and humble. I mean, there's a language like this all throughout Scripture where Jesus is really tough, you know? I mean, he just, he just comes down hard sometimes, you know? He says, you fools. That's not very nice, right? You know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. What Jesus is, the illustration he uses is the fact that Israel is just east of the Mediterranean Sea. And um, when they saw clouds beginning to form in the west, they knew that the rains were coming. And he says, when you see the south wind blowing, south wind would bring heat up from southern Israel, the Negev desert. And when those south winds started to blow, they knew that it was going to be hot because the temperature could rise 30 degrees in just an hour. And he says, you're able to recognize these signs of the weather patterns. You can interpret these signs, but the spiritual emptiness of their hypocrisy, according to Jesus, blinded them from understanding the signs announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. There are all these signs. Jesus is doing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. There are all these signs pointing to the fact that the kingdom of God had come, and they couldn't recognize those signs. Jesus is frustrated. He's frustrated. Because rejecting the kingdom of God meant there was a price to pay. There was, there was a coming crisis. Coming crisis that, that wouldn't be avoided. The long-awaited prophecies of their Messiah were coming to pass right in front of them. They couldn't see it because they had their own agendas. Like the executives at NASA, they couldn't see the coming crisis even though they were being warned. Jesus' ministry ought to have refocused the minds and heart of first century Jews living in Palestine away from the violent nationalism that preoccupied them with kicking out the Romans. This is the crisis that Jesus is talking about. Because in first century Israel, there was this desire for national independence. And so there were all these zealot groups. In fact, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the 12 apostles, Simon, not Simon Peter, a different Simon, was a zealot. And the zealots were a part of a nationalistic movement to kick the Romans out by violence and by force. And Jesus knew that this behavior, this kind of growing insurgency, would ultimately start a war with the Romans. And who knows their first century, who knows what ended up happening? In AD 70. So it actually happened within a generation's time. Jesus was warning them about this disaster that was coming. Now some of you think, is Jesus saying, if you don't worship me, I'm going to do something really mean to you? Well, that's not really the message. What Jesus is recognizing is, unless their hearts and their minds shift from this violent nationalism that wants to kill the Romans to a kingdom-oriented mindset that wants to see God's kingdom come and the real enemy defeated, sin and Satan, that ultimately they are, they are traveling headlong down a path that's leading to national war with the Romans. And it ended up happening 
in AD 70, actually in AD 67, they started a war with the Romans, an insurgency. And Nero was the emperor at the time. Now, this is a painting from 1860 by David Roberts. I used to have this painting framed on the wall in my house. I gave it away to someone. But you can't see it very good here. But if you look closely, there's a bunch of Roman soldiers gathering on a cliffside about to um, invade the city. And you can see flames at the temple. This is David Robert, a Scottish painter in 1860. His just imagination of what the siege of Jerusalem looked like. But if you know your history, if you read Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, you know that in AD 67, the Romans, uh, Nero, sent six legions of Roman soldiers, and they traveled through Israel from all the northern cities one by one. And Josephus records this in his book, The Wars of the Jews. And they finally get to Jerusalem, and they make pleas. Right? The Romans are saying, look, this, we don't have to do this. We don't have to destroy the city. Surrender now, and we'll call this whole thing off. Well, they didn't because they believed that by resisting the Romans, that they would call down the power of God from heaven. That God would finally send the Messiah, who in their mind was a military ruler, who was going to come and defeat the Romans by military force, that if they just held out and showed their, their courage and faithfulness, that God would relent and send the Messiah, the Messiah they thought, and destroy and kill all the Romans. Well, if you know the story... They circled the city for a long time, cutting it off from all resources. And the account was horrific. It's a horrific account of what happened in the city of Jerusalem. Six legions, which is about 60,000 Roman troops, circled the city. And when they finally got inside, they wiped the whole place out. They destroyed the temple. They burned it down. They destroyed the city. It was a great disaster. About a million and a half Jews died because most of them were there for the Passover week. So you had all these people for a holiday trapped inside the city, quickly running out of resources, competing bands of insurgents, right? Maybe like terrorists like we see in the Middle East today. You get these competing terrorist groups vying for power. Jesus foresaw this and wanted to warn them against it, but they wouldn't hear. They wouldn't hear it. And the Jewish rejection of the Messiah had lasting consequences that continue to this day. See, following Jesus comes at a high cost, but the cost for rejecting him is always higher. We think about what it means to follow Jesus. And there'll be suffering, and that means there's some self-denial, and it means sometimes there's public ridicule. And we think of what it means to actually stand for Jesus Christ in a world which doesn't think very highly of Jesus, Right? He didn't do all the things that people in our estimation of what greatness is, right? He never wrote a book. He never built a multi-billion dollar corporation. You know, he never built any big buildings, right? I mean, all the things that we think of as greatness, Jesus didn't do any of those things. And so there's a cost for following Jesus, but the cost for rejecting him is always greater. And then finally, he makes this statement in the next set of series of verses which essentially is he says, settle up now with God while you can. Better settle up now with God while you can. He says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what's right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate? Make every effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, 
you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Sometimes Jesus' words are, are cryptic and complex and hard to understand. What has that got to do, right, with the previous couple of verses? What Jesus is pointing to is he's saying, look, this crisis that's coming can be avoided if you repent. If you settle up your account with God. That's another way of Jesus saying repent and believe the gospel. Right? Settle up your account with God. One day, God will settle all accounts. We read last week, the Bible says that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. And he has guaranteed it through the resurrection of his son. God has appointed a day. That day is coming. We don't know when that day is. But the day is coming in which God will judge all human beings. It's guaranteed. It's set in stone in the mind of God. We don't know when it is. It may happen soon. It may not happen soon. But there will come a day when God will judge all mankind. And what Jesus is saying is settle your account with God now. If you settle with him now, you won't be liable for your debts later. If you refuse or linger, you'll regret it. You'll be made to pay every last penny, which is a way of saying that God will not hold the guilty blameless. Listen, when we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, when we repent of our sins, the Greek word metanoia, which really means to turn from our sins, not just say, oh God, I'm sorry, but to actually be sorry, to actually turn from our sins and to put our trust in the saving power of Jesus, those debts are taken care of. Not that God just forgets the debt, but that debt is paid for through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we reject, when people reject that, they still have their debts. Go to God in the judgment with the debt of sin. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, when it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that's a, that's a proper interpretation of the Greek word. And it can be translated as forgive us our transgressions, forgive us our sins. Those are all viable options, but, but many have argued specifically for the word debts because sin creates a debt that we, we owe God. We've, we've, we've transgressed God's law, and that only gets taken care of not by being a good person because we can never be good enough. It's good to be a good person. Not by living a sinless life because we can never live a completely sinless life. So what do we do? We can trust in Jesus. That's how we settle our accounts. And if you haven't trusted in Christ this morning for your salvation, well, today is the day of salvation. If you have not repented of your sins, if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, today is that day. Today is the day where those debts can be taken care of, where you can settle your account with God. You say, how do I do that? by trusting in him, by believing in him, by repenting of your sins, by following after him. Perfection? No. It's not what it says. It's not about being perfect. But it's about trusting in Jesus, and it's about recognizing that sin creates a debt with God that can only be paid through Jesus' sacrifice. What's the takeaway? Repent while you still can. That's the takeaway. We ought to be repenting people. We ought to be people who repent and repent often. We shouldn't view repentance as something that we do one time and we never repent again. 
The Lord's Prayer is a good example. We repent daily. And that's God's message to us, to his people then and now. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray.